Sunday's a big Sunday for us with John Reed here. And more than us, it's a big Sunday for lost people. The shape of Southern Baptist evangelism today is in crisis. And I don't have a lot of optimism that many will fix that anytime soon. And you know, you and I can struggle with evangelism and still make it to heaven. Aren't you glad that your place in heaven does not depend upon your performance in evangelism? I, I am uh, very, very happy about that. So when we do not, uh, when we fail to reach out, when we don't care, uh, when we don't stretch, when we don't make ourselves a little uncomfortable, uh, we don't pay the price, but lost people do. And I want to press that upon you to give everything you can to get somebody to Jesus this Sunday. And if you don't, let your heart break until you have another opportunity to do so. That's the key. That's the key. If you've got a heart for it, you'll find a way to do it. You'll find a way to do it effectively as well. There's another compelling reason to really put a lot of energy into this weekend uh, when John Reed is here to reach lost people. And that is, Jesus did promise after issuing the Great Commission, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So he's with you. But there is something about outreach that deepens one's fellowship with Christ. It makes it even more sweeter. Jesus is closer to the soul winner than any other Christian. Jesus is closer to the one that is like him after lost people. Now, that doesn't mean those who struggle with evangelism can't fellowship with the Lord. Oh, no. Oh, no. There'd be no hope for any of us if that were the case. But the truth is, is that the fellowship grows more sweeter and grows more dynamic and stronger when we are uh, seeking to reach out to others. He's with us in that context uh, because we're risking and we find that he is there. He's, he's the one we've got to depend on. And interestingly enough, when we get to lost people, we find he's already there because he's still seeking to save that which is lost. Uh, there's nothing about Jesus that's ever changed. You realize that? He said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That didn't change in the resurrection and the ascension. He's still doing it. And when you get around lost people, you just get more of Jesus. See, you deepen a sense of his presence. And that's why I want to invite your attention to Hebrews 11 uh, this evening. Uh, we looked last week at Ephesians 3.17, where Paul said, I'm praying for you that you be strengthened in the inner man by the Spirit, that, that Christ may be down home in your hearts through what? Faith. So I want to look at faith tonight. Christ is settled even more and more in our hearts and souls by faith. Well, wait a minute. I thought you just said we have more of an experience with Jesus and His presence in outreach. Well, if you've got faith, you're going to reach out. You've got to have faith and trust God. Trust His gospel. Trust His saving power. Trust the work of His Spirit uh, to reach out to lost people. And so it's very appropriate for us to look at those things tonight. In fact, I'd, I'd say to you that um, trusting Him is like a master key to a very large building. A master key gets you in everywhere. By the way, nobody on staff has a master key. All right? Nobody at all has a master key on staff. All right? Now, if you don't understand that, you've never had a master key, <laughs> okay? We don't advertise that. But uh, a master key will get you into every room in a facility, every room in a building. It unlocks every door. It is a master key. Faith is the master key to the grace of God, the graces 
of God. There's saving grace, there's empowering grace, there's forgiving and cleansing grace. There's grace to meet every need the child of God has. There's grace enough to even save lost people. Is that not a marvelous and miraculous thing uh, over which we should never grow weary? So Christ may dwell in our hearts. We may have a stronger sense of his presence through faith and the kind of faith that will obey him even in outreach. And Hebrews 11.1 talks about this. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Well, what, what is this? Well, let me, let me uh, look at several aspects of faith here this evening, and let's cover these this evening. First is the meaning of faith. Uh, the text right here makes it very clear. It's substance and evidence. Faith is substance. It's the substance of things hoped for. When you have faith in God's will and His promises, it's as if you have the substance of what you're asking for right here. Right here. You've got the substance. You're holding the substance. Faith is just as good as holding the fulfillment of one of the promises of God. It's just like holding an answered prayer. It is substance. Uh, And it's like having the substance of that for which you have asked. Now, the word substance can be translated or understood as solid ground. Sometimes it was translated that way. And we are then on solid ground with God when we trust Him. What a gracious provision of God. Is there anybody here who's never struggled in their walk with God? If you got saved 60 seconds ago, that might be you. But everyone else other than that has struggled at some point or another. That can keep you from rushing after God and storming His throne, pleading with Him for help. You can get discouraged and you can start feeling, I can't go to Him because I'm unworthy. Well, you're half right. You're unworthy, but you've got to storm the throne and you've got to go to Him. And He says, all you need is not personal holiness or righteousness. But if you failed and if you have, if you have been foolish, if you've got a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise your presence. You come to him by faith. And so what God has done is that God has made, God has made access to him and all the promises and all the graces Jesus purchased at the cross available to all who have faith. That's it. Now look, you've had faith. You've had faith today, most likely. If you've ever taken any kind of prescription from a doctor, you've had faith. I mean, you've received a prescription from a doctor whose credentials you probably did not verify. And you've gone to a pharmacist whose skill you probably have not verified. You don't have a personal relationship with that person. You probably don't have much of a personal relationship, at least not deep, with the doctor. And yet you've taken that prescription, and you have had it filled, and you have ingested into your body some kind of chemicals, a synthetic medicine that was created in a laboratory by people you've never met, and you're hoping for healing from that. Hey, if we can trust people, If we can trust individuals we hardly know with our health, isn't it time to trust the God of all creation and resurrection? It's the substance of things hoped for. Then it's evidence. Evidence of things not seen. Evidence proves the reality of what we can't see. Now, in the first century, they, of course, didn't have videotape, and so they weren't able to actually see crimes committed. Even today, we don't have many of them videotaped. Uh, but uh, in the first century, they certainly didn't. So they had to have evidence to try cases. Uh, that plays heavily into Pilate's trial of Jesus. Didn't play much in the Jewish trial of Jesus. 
And uh, Pilate uh, didn't find any evidence to convict Jesus of anything. So he said, uh, I find no fault in him four, possibly five times. But evidence proves the reality of what we cannot see. And that's what happens in a jury trial or a bench trial. There's evidence that's presented. You can't see the crime, but you can see the evidence. And that's what faith is. Faith is evidence that God is going to come through. Faith is just as good as evidence. So when you place faith in God and His promises, in His Word, it's as if your faith is actually evidence that God is going to come through. Now, I want to caution here. We, we do not believe in the name-it-claim-it theology, some of our charismatic uh, and some of our Pentecostal friends. Um, that theology is sophisticated and it's developed. Uh, it's rooted in Genesis 1 in some exaggerated understandings of that without biblical boundaries. And that is, God gave us dominion in Genesis 1 when we came to the earth and we've exercised it. Uh, we uh, exercise dominion over the earth and so therefore we have farms and we're able to produce food. Medicines, we're able to exercise dominion over chemicals and other uh, elements and, and develop medicines. Uh, we're able to take uh, the resources of the earth and develop products. Okay, so we've exercised uh, dominion. We, we are able to exercise dominion over the animal kingdom. Therefore, we have pets and zoos, not to be confused with the middle school boys Sunday school class. But uh, that's, what we, that's what we've got there, all right? But um, uh, we, we've already exercised dominion. But the whole notion among some of the more extreme charismatic Pentecostal folks is that our dominion is so totalitarian on the earth, God has got to get our permission to do anything on the earth. That's the extent of dominion, that notion. And so what that particular theology teaches is that you, you, can, you can go to God and you can order something from Him to get it done on earth. And so some have characterized God in this theology as a bellboy. And that's not far from the truth. That's really not much of an exaggeration. Sometimes it's said bitterly, and it shouldn't be, but uh, that, that's not far from the truth. That's the notion. That's not what the Scripture teaches. The Bible nowhere teaches that when God gave us authority on the earth, that He gave us all authority. Jesus claimed that in heaven and earth. Therefore, go make disciples. And it never teaches that whenever... God gave us authority and dominion that he relinquished his own. Never teaches that, never says that. He is still Lord and God of all. Now, I don't want with this to cool your enthusiasm to go before God and ask him to come through on his promises, though. So while we do not believe in name it, claim it, or what Dr. McGorman used to say, gab it and grab it, while we don't believe in that, we don't believe in name it, claim it, where we name it and then we claim it, we do believe God names it and we claim it. That we do believe in. And God has said within these boundaries of my love and my holiness, my goodwill, my fatherly commitment to you, within these boundaries, you get into those boundaries and you, name, you, you claim what I've already decided to give you. And so he urges us to come before him with his promises. And by making those promises, when we trust him, it's as if we've got evidence for a good case that God is going to come through. So faith is substance. Uh, we need to trust that God really wants Jesus down home in our hearts. And then it is evidence. God has named that Christ is to dwell down home and our hearts, and we can claim that by faith. Well, so that's the meaning of faith. And then there's the might of faith. Adrian Rogers said, Faith is the most dynamic force in the world because it releases the hand of omnipotence. 
Faith and prayer can do anything that God can do or that God wants to do. And that's what faith is. In fact, Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So it leads us to two conclusions. One, faithlessness or living without faith pains God. Now, we do have to restore a emphasis that I heard often when I was first a Christian, and that is, unbelief is a wicked sin against God. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Now, let's never say that with the personality of a jackhammer. Let's not do that, okay? Let's always be compassionate when we're speaking to people who are struggling. But just because someone struggles... And, and it doesn't mean they don't have any faith. You remember the father brought his son, and he told Jesus, if you can heal him, please do. And Jesus said, if. He said, well, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Well, he got what he was asking for. So his faith was like the size of a mustard seed. So we don't, we don't say that unbelief is a wicked sin against God, according to Hebrews 2.12, with the, with the personality of a wolverine or a Tasmanian devil. We don't do that. But we've got to restore the notion that it is a terrible offense not to trust God. In fact, it keeps unbelievers out of heaven because they're condemned already according to John 3.18. Unbelief is a pain to God because it represents the doubter's critical thoughts about God. Now just imagine this. You're about to speak somewhere and someone gets up to introduce you and they say marvelous things about your experience. They say marvelous things about your education and other credentials. But then they finish the introduction by saying, there's one thing I must tell you, though. You can't believe a word this person says. When we doubt God, we're saying we can't believe the word he has said. Though he has certified it in Jesus, though he has guaranteed it by the resurrection and all of his promises. John wrote in 1 John 5.10, He that does not believe makes God a liar. Somebody may say, well, I've got intellectual problems with all of this. Well, there, there may be some hope depending on your disposition. Uh, for the one that's humble before God and will go wherever the truth leads him, in John 7.17, 7, he promises you'll know. And so uh, uh, it's a remarkable thing that when you have a heart that's humble before God, God will give you the truth. Even if the person isn't sure God exists, if they have got a humble, uh, a humble um, heart. And here's why. Knowing and trusting the truth of God is more of a moral thing than it is an intellectual thing. You get your heart in the right disposition towards truth, and God will take care of the mind. Well... I've given books to others who are doubting uh, the faith. I've given them books on apologetics. And I've said, now, this isn't going to be much help to you if your heart is not open to the truth wherever it leads you. You make sure your heart is surrendered to God. In fact, before you ever read any of this, surrender your heart and say, God, I'll go wherever you want me to. I'll follow this truth wherever it takes me. I've actually had people come back to me having not cracked open the book and say, everything's okay now. I surrendered. And, and God convinced my heart and, God, and then convinced my mind that these things are true and what I've been taught is the, uh, is the truth. That's not to say there's no role for apologetics, but listen to me. Understanding, embracing the truth, trusting the truth is more of a moral issue 
than it is an intellectual issue. It starts in the heart. And when the heart gets right, then we can come through with some of the thinking. That's why apologetics don't have much of an impact upon lost people. That's why they're usually pretty good for Christian people. Okay? That's not always the case. I don't want to make too hard or rigid a statement there. It's helped a few lost people that I know of, but mostly it's a help to humble Christian people. However, if a person's disposition towards the truth is one of antagonism, and they're, they, they, they have the attitude, my mind is made up, don't confuse me with the truth, and that's their disposition, um, they won't find the truth any more than a thief will find a police officer. And I think that's an excellent, excellent illustration. So it pains God if we do not trust that Christ can live down in our heart, uh, down home in our hearts by faith. But faith pleases God. And faith responds to what God has made known of himself and that honors him. And so faith pleases him. Now when God unveils himself to boost our faith, God usually does not overwhelm us. God usually doesn't perform an actual Red Sea miracle or raise someone before our eyes from the dead. Oh, I'd love to witness that and see that. But even in 1,500 years of biblical history from uh, Adam and Eve until the Apostle John in Revelation, we've got 1,500 years, and only about 300 of those years were miracles performed. You've got the era of Moses and Joshua, you've got Elijah and Elisha, then you've got Christ and the apostles. But you don't have any miracles performed by Adam, you don't have any miracles performed by Seth, you don't have any miracles performed by David or Solomon, you don't have any uh, miracles performed by them. Okay. So for 1,200 to 1,500 years of biblical history, you just don't have any record of miracles. But those folks that didn't perform miracles still knew God and walked with him. See, so God did not overwhelm them with fabulous and spectacular displays of power. That wasn't it at all. In fact, Jesus would kind of cool enthusiasm for miracles with this parable of the rich man in hell in Luke 16, wouldn't he? You remember the story? You got Lazarus that's in hell. Uh, not Lazarus. You got the rich man in hell. He looks at Lazarus. Okay. Man, it was almost a 10-second heretic. But you've got... Uh, you've got... Um, the rich man in hell, you've got Lazarus in heaven, and they're conversing, he's conversing, the rich man is, with Abraham, and he's still treating Lazarus as someone that's lowly. He wants, watch this, he wants Lazarus to leave heaven and go home to his brothers and tell them and warn them lest they come to a place like he was. And what did Abraham respond? How did he respond? They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Oh no, Father Abraham, they'll be persuaded if one rise from the dead. And Abraham replies, If they will not believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. It's not the pattern of God to overwhelm people with the miraculous to elicit their faith, but what God does with the human soul to elicit faith is adequate. It was for you. It was for you. And so this kind of faith pleases him. Now why in the world would God fail, or not fail, but refuse to overwhelm us with the miraculous to elicit our faith? Well, can you imagine a rich man saying, having lots of friends saying, now do they love me because of who I am? Or do they love me because of what I have? Imagine God may be thinking the same way. Do they love me 
Do they trust me because of who I am or because of what I have? Jesus chastised a whole crowd in John 6. He took his large group of disciples and split that thing right down the middle, maybe even more, in John chapter 6 with a hard, harsh sermon because he said, you're following me because of the meat and the bread, because of the miraculous, the feeding of the multitudes. God refuses to bribe anyone. So when we trust him, we end up pleasing him greatly. So faith pleases God. Faithlessness pains God. But then there's a third thing, and that is the maturing of faith. If I can experience a sweeter and greater presence of Jesus Christ by faith, how is it then that I grow and expand and develop my faith? Well, one, saturate. Saturate your mind and heart with God's word, especially as promises. And don't be embarrassed if, to begin with, you need a Bible promise book. Jack Countryman has put together several really remarkable, remarkable tool that I've, I've got a copy of what he's done, and uh, I've, I've prayed through it in my morning devotions, and I'm grateful for it. But saturate your mind and heart with God's word, especially as promises. Now, that leads us to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I think the chapter division here is disruptive. Uh, in, uh, I think chapter 12, verses 1 uh, through um, 3 probably belong with chapter 11. But chapter 12, and by the way, these didn't come for 600 years after the uh, after the writing of the New Testament. So they weren't, they weren't inspired. They're very helpful and very useful, but once in a while they're disruptive. But chapter 12, verse 1, starts, Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, lay aside every weight. Okay, the therefore, I don't know about you, but I've gotten a whole lot in my devotions with just one word. How about you? Have you ever just had one word that turned everything upside down or right side up, depending on where you're standing in your walk with God. Well, the therefore usually points back to the material in the previous chapter, the previous section. And here he's talking about faith. Well, he continues the discussion about faith in chapter 12, verse 1. Because of all of this faith and these examples of faith that I've just recounted, therefore I want you to do something. Well, have you ever read carefully chapter 11? Do you know what's there? We call it the hall of faith. And who does it consist of? The hall of faith consists of who? Yeah, the Old Testament characters. So he references the word of God. He goes back to the scripture. Uh, chapter 11, verse 4, by faith, Abel, in Genesis 4. Uh, chapter uh, 11, verse 5, by faith, Enoch, in Genesis chapter 5. And uh, then he goes to Genesis 6 through 9, by faith, Noah. Then beginning in Genesis 12, verse 8, by faith, Abraham. And verse 11, by faith, Sarah. And, and he continues on, and then he, he says, time's going to fail me if I mention them all. And so he lists one right after um, another in verse 32, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and on and on and on. And then he talks about some of the challenges that they ended up facing in verse 36 and 37. So he goes back and he recounts Old Testament history. He goes back and recounts biblical material. His mind was filled with the Word of God. He was saturated. Now, he didn't have a copy. Uh, most likely, he didn't have a copy of all these Old Testament scrolls in front of him. Most of them had to do it from memory. 
And what a remarkable thing. And it's, it's remarkable how precisely they quote from the Old Testament in the New. Uh, their powers of memory were greatly expanded. The, the worst thing in the world that happened to the uh, human memory was the publication of books. Now we no longer need to store things in our minds. We can store them in books and pages. Books. Well, that's how it is. We're not going to change any of that uh, at this point. It's a little too late for that. But the Gutenberg Press really uh, ended up injuring uh, our memories and stuff. I, I, I suspect that we'll find out one day, uh, in fact, that uh, prior to 500 years ago with the invention of the Gutenberg Press, nobody ever said, you know, I'm real bad at names. <laughs> you know, the memory was just so much better. Uh, back then. Well, this is what he's doing. He is recounting from memory all of these characters. He quotes and alludes in an entire chapter to Old Testament personalities. He is saturated in the Word. So, this is what he does in order to boost faith. Now, I want to, um, I want to make a point here. Um, and I want to keep from misleading you on this. The victorious life in Jesus Christ is not always an uninterrupted upward climb in faith. It gets up interrupted a lot. So often, and, and sometimes some preachers can be guilty of this, all they ever share are good stories and stories of victory. And we can do that. We, we can read biographies or autobiographies, and, and sometimes they're guilty of this as well. And what we highlight is the life of victory. But what we do not highlight is the decade of struggle that preceded it. See, How long was it between God's promise to Abraham of a son and the birth of Isaac? A quarter century. And Abraham had some ups and downs in that time. He really did. And, and so you've got, how long was it between the time David was anointed and he actually took the throne in Jerusalem? How long? Almost 40 years. Well, and then he became king and actually took the throne, but it was in Hebron where he was there for seven years. Then, only later, was he able to take the throne in Jerusalem. He had to wait that long. And he's the king for crying out loud. He's the most powerful authority of all. I don't want you to get the idea that walking with God by faith is always an upward, uninterrupted upward climb. In fact, the more faith, oftentimes, the more trouble. Because trouble and heartache and sorrow and setbacks become the food of faith. That's not how I would do it. It really isn't. But I, I'll be honest with you. The more I seek to press on and press onward, upward, forward with Him, oftentimes the more comes my way and the more difficult it gets. Because the person that walks with God by faith pays a price. That person has a big old bullseye on his or her back. That's what happens. And so I don't want to mislead you and give the idea that faith is always an automatic victory. Sometimes we don't see the decade of struggle behind. Now, that, that's often true for our examples and our sermons and sometimes our testimonies and stories and biographies and autobiographies. But it's not true of the characters of the Bible. Have you ever noticed that? Even the hero of the Bible had unbearable sorrow. Heartbreaking, heart-wrenching difficulties on nearly every page of the record of his ministry. 
just about everywhere he went. So you not only see the biblical characters on the mountaintop in victory, oftentimes you see the biblical characters in the valley of sorrows. See? I mean, it's, for, it's not because there's no reason that David said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of darkness, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because he walks through the valley of the shadow of darkness. Sometimes he's tempted to fear evil. So this is very, very real. So the word, the word that will persuade us that Christ can be down home in our hearts by faith is the word of God. So saturate. The second thing is to amputate. Amputate every unconfessed sin. Chapter 12, verse 1. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Now an athlete would not run very well if he had weights around his ankles or a piano on his back. That's an old saying about slow people that are running. He's running like he has a piano on his back. It would not help an athlete at all to do that. And the same is true when it comes to us. If we've got unconfessed sin, it's going to hinder our faith. We've got something we're holding on to. And we've got a design for our lives or decisions or some area of our life that's other than what God wants us to have. It's going to really hinder and injure and wound our faith and our walk with, uh, with God. That's why I appreciate what Gerhardt uh, Terstegen said. He said this, as long as we want to be something other than God wants us to be, we're only tormenting ourselves to no purpose. I don't know what you might be hanging on to, some resentment or some bitterness or a habit or uh, some kind of design or plan or scheme or something, but it's not worth it. You just torment yourself. Give it up. Turn to God. Immerse yourself in grace, and it's far better. So we can stop the torment. We can clean up the home of our hearts so that Christ may dwell comfortably there by faith. And the third thing is this. Concentrate. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the author. That means he defines it. He writes the chapters. Faith is as he says it is. He's the finisher or the epitome is a good way to paraphrase this of our faith. So we're to concentrate on depending on him. Now imagine a wealthy person finding out that you have a financial need and quietly comes up and says, um, look to me, I'll take care of it. Well, chapter 12, verse 1 says, looking unto Jesus. In the same way, look to me. What does that mean? That means depend on me. Look to me. And I will say, actually, mentally concentrating on him with the intention of depending on him causes faith to grow and causes it to uh, develop. Um, If you take stock only of yourself, if you concentrate on yourself and even the strength or degree of faith that you have, frankly, you can go pretty discouraged. Most discouraged people in the world are those who think a lot of themselves. I heard of one counselor who had a client that came in uh, one day and described some problems and really whined and complained the whole time. And the counselor's uh, recommendation was, how about you leave my office, and when you do, I want you to go to the other side of the tracks in town and find someone that needs a friend and needs help and help them. Start thinking about other people. Look, I want to tell you something. We can constantly take thought of ourselves, and to a degree, that's very, very helpful. It can be. But there's got to come a point when we stop 
and move on to focus on God and focus on other people because this never gets completely fixed on this side of the grave. Did you know that? It doesn't. And, and by the way, in churches that focus uh, and obsess over discipleship and exclude evangelism, they never get to the point where they grow and reach the world because that's a never-ending process. Now, we need to, we need to have discipleship. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But this never gets completely fixed on this side of the grave, you see. And while we're concentrating on a banquet and luxuries of uh, gourmet spiritual dining, the world goes without Jesus Christ. There's got to be a little bit more careful planning here when it comes to that. And so in our own hearts and lives, we've got to be careful of obsessing over ourselves and look to Jesus. You look to self, you're going to be discouraged. You look to Jesus and you're going to be wildly encouraged and your faith is going to burgeon and grow because when you look at him, you're going to see plenty of reasons to trust him and no reason to doubt him at all. Uh, One author, James McConkie, addresses this. He says, True faith pays no attention whatever to itself. It centers all its gaze upon Christ. When Satan cannot beguile us in any other way, He gets us to scrutinize our faith instead of looking to Christ. That faith is the strongest which pays no attention to itself. Therefore, do not worry about your faith. Take care that you are depending on Jesus and faith will take care of itself. Look to Him. Ron Dunn illustrates this, uh, telling the story of when he was in Colorado one time in March. And in many places in Colorado, there's still ice and snow on the ground in March. In fact, the um, road through the Rocky Mountain National Park is still closed in March uh, because you can't pass it. There's still so much snow, and it's liable to snow again all the, in many places, even through April. Um, but he said he uh, was with a friend, and I don't know exactly where they were, but there was a pond uh, on the property. And the friend said, hey, You want to walk out on the ice. This is your only chance in your life to walk on water. You want to come? And Ron wasn't terribly excited about doing that. He had no interest in walking on the ice, but it's his one opportunity. And so he begins to step out on the ice. And you know what he does at first. He's on solid ground here, and he puts that foot on the ice and pulls back. He gets a little more comfortable, puts that foot on, and puts the second foot on, and then he inches out, you know, and uh, ice doesn't break if you do it this way, he said, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he keeps inching out. He has a miserable time getting a few feet out, and then he comes back in. They get in the vehicle, and they drive down the road, and they get to a lake, and there is a man in the middle of the lake with this entire, looks like a city set up in the middle of the lake, ice fishing. He's got a burner going on on the ice, uh, ready to uh, fry anything he catches. He's got, he's got a lot of equipment. He's got several coolers. and I mean, it's like a small city. A man cave on the ice. And he doesn't have a care in the world. He's having the time of his life out there. Near the same place, same thickness of ice. Now, which of those two persons do you think enjoyed their time on the ice more? Well, let me ask you this. He asked this question. What held the two of them up and kept them from falling through the ice. Was it their faith in the ice? Or was it the ice? 
You know, Ron could have had absolutely no faith, and he nearly did in the ice, and still would have stood. The other man had complete faith. It's not that. It happens to be the ice. In the same way, when it comes to you, it's not your degree or your strength of faith that keeps you right with God. It's the fact that God responds even to mustard seed-sized faith. Now, we're encouraging you to grow in your faith, and here's why. Because in Mark 9, 29, Jesus said, Be it done to you according to your faith. So Christ can dwell in your hearts by faith. And as you do that, as you grow in faith, then uh, you can be more effective at reaching people for Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the good news of your word. We praise you for the marvelous, marvelous power that's in it. And I want to thank you, O God, for how real your word is. I have found a friend somewhere in your word who struggled with just about exactly what I've struggled with. And I want to honor you and bless you for that. I thank you for such examples as Adam and Eve because I've walked out of the garden staring at the ground having been expelled. I, um, Lord, have um, struggled along with David. I've struggled along with so many others in the scripture and I know so many of us have. And we want to praise you for making it clear in your word. And Father, I want to pray then that you will build us and strengthen us, O God, in these coming days, that we might be effective for October 23rd. Magnify Jesus on that day, and I pray that those people, O God, will be the marvelous and largest beneficiaries. Help us to be servants in that way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you.